First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do today, will you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4? Uh, we are in our final chapter now today. We're arriving here in the last chapter of this wonderful letter uh, that we've been studying for the past several months. And, and I really don't know if there's any section in this letter that is more immediately and directly practical for our everyday life than the one that we are going to study together uh, today. We're going to talk about several things today that we all deal with. We're going to talk about uh, what to do with our worries. Uh, we're going to talk about how to have joy even in difficult circumstances. And we're even going to talk about disagreements in the church. Has that ever happened? And what to do with those. And uh, let's start as we always do by reading the Word of God together. Philippians chapter 4 starting in verse 1. And uh, we'll read down to verse 7 today. Philippians 4 and verse 1, the Word of God says, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you today. We come before you with joy, with thanksgiving, because of all that you are, because of all that you have done. Lord, we pray today that you would take this wonderful portion of your perfect word, that you would speak it, Father, in a way that we might hear it, or that you would apply it to our hearts, that, Father, today you would change us by your word that we would trust you more than we did before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is so much that I believe the Lord wants us to see uh, in these verses today. And so, church family, let's just jump right in with verse 1. If you'll look at that verse with me again, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Now, one of the things that I think just jumps off the page when you read that first verse is how much Paul loved the people of this church. And you hear just the words that he uses, it just his love oozes off the page. Two times in this one verse, he refers to them as his beloved, the people that he loves. He also says that he longs for them. He calls them my longed for brethren. It's a word that speaks about heartache. And again, we need to remember that Paul is writing these words from a Roman prison cell, right? And he's writing to believers in a faraway city of Philippi. And he's longing for them. He says, I miss you. He says, I want to be with you again. And as we read these words, as we read about Paul's love for this church, it should be a reminder to us that we're called to have the same kind of love for the people of our church. 
to love one another, to miss one another when we are not together. He also calls this church in verse 1 his joy and his crown. I love that. Again, here is Paul in jail, fastened to a Roman guard night and day. His circumstances are not, uh, shall we say, ideal. And yet he has joy. And part of why he has joy, part of what brings the Apostle Paul joy are these believers. It's, it brings him joy just to think about them, to think about what God has done in them, to think about what God is doing through them brings him joy. And again, church, we should apply that to ourselves, that other believers should bring us joy when we think about them. And, and particularly when we think about believers that by God's grace, we've been able to play a part, a role in their spiritual growth. I I think that's why Paul calls them his crown. One person said that the Philippian Christians, this Philippian church was Paul's crowning achievement. And I think that's right. I think Paul is looking ahead to the day when he would stand before the presence of God and these Philippian Christians would be there also with him and he would know that their lives that have been saved by God's grace, that Paul was able to play a role in that, that Paul was able to share the gospel with them, that Paul was able to disciple them, that he had invested in them and he calls them his crown. He says a very similar thing about the Thessalonian Christians in the letter that he wrote to them. He said to them, for what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Again, he calls them his crown. Friend, what is your crown? Who is that person recently that you have shared the gospel with? Who is that person that you have invested in and discipled even this past year? Church, let's spend our lives working for a crown that will last. And when we get to heaven, we all know what we will do with all of those crowns. We will not keep them for ourselves, but we will join the 24 elders and we will throw our crowns down at the feet of the crucified one because we will know even more there than we do here that who we are and everything that we have done is by God's grace. Again, in verse 1, Paul tells his church how much he loves them. We've already talked about that, but he also calls them to do something. He starts this verse with the word therefore because he's referring back to everything that he's written to them in this letter so far. He's saying, in light of all that I've written to you about how Jesus Christ is gain and the whole rest of the world is a loss compared to knowing Christ, in light of all of that, he says in verse 1, I want you to stand fast, stand strong in the Lord. At the end of chapter 3, he compared the Christian life to a race. And the Christian life is a race. But the Christian life is also a war. It is also a battle. And so here at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, I want you to stand strong. He, He wants them as individual Christians to live a spiritually stable life. And he wants this church together corporately to be a spiritually stable church. 
And in this passage, I believe Paul gives us five keys to a spiritually stable life. And each one of these is so important. Here's the first key. If we're going to be spiritually stable, Paul says, first of all, we need to pursue harmony with other believers. Well, we can't be spiritually stable if we're not united, if we don't have harmony with the believers who are around us. You know, even before you get to verse 2 of chapter 4, you already see hints earlier in this letter to the Philippians that there might have been an issue in this area of unity in the body. Back at the end of chapter 1 and verse 27, he talked about how he wanted them to have one mind and one spirit. It implies that maybe at this particular moment, they weren't all of one mind. In chapter 2 and verse 2, he says the same thing. He says, I want you to to be like-minded. I want you to be of one accord. I want you to be of one mind. And and then we come to chapter 4, and Paul is done hinting, and now he just goes right after it, and he actually calls out two women in the church by name. In verse 2, he says, I am poor Euodia, and I am poor Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, can you imagine when this letter was first read to the church at Philippi? And when whoever was reading this letter got to this line, I bet Euodia and Syntyche wanted to crawl under a pew and die. I mean, to be called out by the Apostle Paul and for it to be recorded for all time in God's holy word. I mean, these poor women, we don't know anything else about them. When I get to heaven, I just want to give these women a hug because this is all we know about them. These two fighting, bickering women, and we we don't even know what they were fighting about. I shared with you earlier, I think they were fighting about which one of them had the worst name because those are some terrible names. Maybe they sound better in Greek than they do in English, but these are bad names. And this is rare for the Apostle Paul to call out people by name. Paul says some very strong things in his letters, but there's only one or two other occasions in all of Paul's letters where he actually rebukes someone by name name. And again, he he doesn't say what the issue was. He doesn't say what they were dealing with. Evidently, it was not a doctrinal issue, or likely Paul would have corrected whoever was wrong on that point of doctrine. Most likely, it was just a personal disagreement between two women in the church. Now, does that ever happen in the church? I mean, we don't know what they were fighting about. Maybe they were uh, fighting over who was not invited to be on the church decorating committee. Maybe they were fighting over the placement of the casseroles at the church supper. We don't know what the fight was about. Uh, And and you know, when you think about it, there there are some really silly things that we fight about sometimes in church. I came across a a survey, a list that was compiled by Tom Rayner, where he sent out a survey on Twitter and asked people to reply with uh, the silliest things that people ever fought about in their church. And he took all of the responses and he compiled it into his top 25 list. Now, we don't have time to go through all 25 of these, but but listen to some of these stories. These are true things. One person wrote in and said his church had an argument about whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. (laughs) Rayner said it was fine as long as they also had angel food cake. Just kind of balance balance it right out. 
Another person said they witnessed a 45-minute heated argument in the church over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, whether it should be black or brown, whether it should have two or three or four drawers in it. Can you imagine that? 45-minute argument over a cabinet. Uh, Rainer said that must have been an official cabinet meeting of the church. (laughs) Terrible, I know. Rainer received reports from two different churches who had fights over the type of coffee that was being served. One of them transitioned from Folgers to the stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend, and members left the church in the latter example over coffee. Here's just one more. The church had an argument over whether whether the fake dusty plants should be removed from the podium. I love that. Rainer said, just give them a little water. They'll be just fine. <laughs> I, you know, I wish I was making these things up, but, but I'm not. And, and listen, we've had fun laughing about this, laughing about fights over silly things in the church. But, but, but the, the fact of the matter is that this isn't a laughing matter because when we get distracted in the church over silly fights and silly disagreements, we're getting distracted from the mission that the Lord of all creation has given to his church. And it is a mission to take the gospel that alone saves people from hell and prepares them for heaven. It is a word that all of creation, that every people group on the planet needs to hear. And the time is too short to be sitting around debating what coffee goes in the coffee pot. And the truth of the matter is, fighting in the church of Jesus Christ is worse than I'm describing. It's not just distracting from the message of Jesus. It contradicts the message of Jesus. Because the good news that we proclaim is that it is possible through faith in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, to have peace with God. And when two people in the church who have the Prince of Peace living within them are not able to come together at one, it contradicts the message. It's something that the world cannot understand, and frankly, the world should not understand it. Because it should not be the case. Paul had obviously heard about the fighting that was going on between these two ladies, and perhaps it had spread to others in the church. Again, he doesn't take sides. He doesn't say you're right and you're wrong. He doesn't really even talk about what the issue is because, listen, the issue is not the issue, and it seldom is. The issue is the condition of our hearts before the Lord. And what Paul knew is that if these two women were right in their hearts before the Lord, guess what? They would be right with one another. They would be able to agree. And that's why he says, I implore you. And notice that he says it to both of them. It's emphatic here. He says, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche. I implore each of you has the burden on yourself to make the first move, to not wait for the other and say, well, I'll talk to her as soon as she apologizes to me. Right? Now he implores both of them and he says, I want you to agree to have the same mind in the Lord. It's the same phrase that was used in chapter 2 and verse 2. It doesn't mean that they literally are going to agree about every single issue. They might not even be able to agree about whatever this issue is. But he says, I want you to agree about the main thing. 
I want you to agree in the Lord about the gospel, the gospel that has set you free, the gospel that has made you one, the gospel that has made you a part of the same church family, the gospel that you have been called to take to the world. And if you can agree together in that, then you can probably get over your disagreements. And he's imploring them to do so. But Paul is wise enough to know that sometimes a rift between two people in the church can only be resolved and healed if a third party steps up and acts as a peacemaker in the situation. That's why he says in verse 3, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, there's been a lot of debate about who this person, this true companion, really is. I, I agree with those who, who think that the word translated companion here, uh, the Greek word syzygous, is actually this man's name. And that he is appealing to a man whose name means companion, whose name means a, a yoke fellow, a partner in ministry, and he's asking him to live up to the meaning of his name. And to step up in this situation and to be a peacemaker that sits down at the table and helps these two women to come together. And notice he's not in any way implying that these two women are not believers. Quite to the contrary, he's appealing to the fact that they are believers. He's appealing to the fact that these are women who have labored with me in the work of the gospel. These are women who, along with these other individuals, Clement and these other workers in the church, whose names are written down in the book of life. And because it, they are, because these are true believers, how important it is that they come back together as one. And so he's appealing to this individual to be a peacemaker before this situation gets worse. Because church family, you know that we have an enemy. And the enemy is trying to do whatever he can to stop the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. And what he wants to do is he wants to take a, a rift, a disagreement between two people in the church. And he wants to use that disagreement to drive a wedge that runs through the entire church family. Because he knows that if he can do that, if he can bring about disunity, if the church cannot be united together, then we cannot be a united front in the world. And we need to be on our guard against that. And we need to be stepping up as peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They're vital in every church. They're vital in our church. And you know what? Maybe right now you're aware of a situation between two people in the church, maybe you're the only one that's aware of it. Is it possible that God is calling you to step up to be like this true companion, to be a peacemaker, and to help these two folks come back together and agree in the Lord about what really matters? I'm so thankful, church, for the unity that God has given to our church. But I'll tell you what, that unity in the Spirit is such a precious thing, and it can easily be lost. And my prayer is that we would defend it, that we would all pray for it, that we would seek the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that we would pursue harmony with other believers. That's the first key Paul gives us about how to live a stable spiritual life. The second key is found in verse 4. Paul says, rejoice all the time. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, 
rejoice. You know, this teaching series is called Joy in Jesus because I believe that that really is the theme of this entire letter. The letter is about joy, about how we can have joy in any circumstance, in any situation because of Jesus. Paul had already commanded back in chapter 3 and verse 1 to rejoice in the Lord, and, and he does so again in this verse two times. But in this verse, he adds a word that wasn't there before. He adds the word always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, let's, let's be honest. Our first reaction when we hear that is, how in the world is that possible? And how in the world is it possible to rejoice no matter what situation is going on? Because we do not live in a utopia, do we? But we don't live in a world where we wake up every day singing, oh, what a beautiful morning, everything's going my way. Right? We all have bad days, humanly speaking. We all get flat tires. We all have bad news at work. We all get bad test results. We all have to attend funerals that we never thought that we would have to attend. How do we have joy when life is incredibly hard. Clearly, when Paul says rejoice always, he is not talking about a superficial, fleeting feeling of happiness because happiness comes and goes. Right? I'm happy when my team wins and I'm sad when they lose. I'm, I'm happy when it's sunny outside, a little sad when it's raining. Right? Anybody else can relate to that, right? Well, our, our, all kinds of things affect our emotions and affect our happiness. Paul is not talking about that. Paul is talking about a deep, settled joy that we can have regardless of our circumstances. Remember, Paul is not writing this letter from a tropical paradise. Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison. And so he has something to teach us. It's with his hands, with shackles around his wrist that he's writing the words, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Apparently, it's possible to be in jail and have shackles around our wrists and to be able to have a deep joy in the Lord all the time. We can have that joy even when tears are running down our faces because we know that even in the midst of sorrow and grief that we have a Lord who is sovereign over all the earth. And we know that no matter what we might be going through, that it is light compared to the eternal weight of glory of what God has done for us in Christ. And the promises that he has made to us. We, uh, our, our joy does not come from our circumstances because our circumstances change. Our joy cannot be ultimately rooted in other people because even the best of people will let us down. Our joy has to be in what Paul says it's in here. Rejoice where? In the Lord. The only way that we can rejoice always is if our joy is rooted in something that never changes. And there's only one person who never changes, and that's the Lord, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when our joy is rooted in Him, then we can have an unshakable joy. That even though we know that's possible, even though we, we know that's a fruit that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in our lives. We know it's available to us. If we're honest, this command is probably one of the most disobeyed commands 
in all of the New Testament. And I think part of the reason for that is that we get our priorities out of whack. You know, when I was a, a kid, I think, is when I first saw this, this acronym about joy, and it's always stuck with me. Maybe you've seen this before. You spell the word joy, J-O-Y, and we can have joy if we put Jesus first, if we put others second, and if we put our, yourself last, right? If you put Jesus first and others second and yourself last, that's a good recipe for joy, but, but too often, you know what we do? We do it in the opposite order, right? We put ourselves first, we, we put others second, and Jesus is last. And when we put it in the opposite order, what are we spelling? I, I don't know. I guess it's, it's yoj. I don't even know what yoj is, but I know by experience it's not that joyful. Joy does not come when we think about ourselves. When we think about ourselves first, you know what? We're held hostage by our circumstances. And when our circumstances are good, I'm good. When my circumstances are bad, it's not good. But when we do what God has said, when we do what he's already taught us in Philippians chapter 2, when we put the preferences of others ahead of ourselves, when we think not only about our own interests, but we think about the interests of others, when we do what our great King and Messiah, Jesus did, who left the glories of heaven and humbled himself and became obedient all the way to the death on the cross, when we give our lives away like that, you know what? In the giving of our lives away, we find the secret of unshakable joy. And then we're able to do what verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. It's a joy the Lord wants us to have. It's the second key to a spiritually stable life. Here, here's the third key. It's closely related to the last. Paul says, number three, be known for being gracious. Be known for being gracious. Look at verse 5. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The word translated gentleness, and in my version, it's a difficult word to, to put into English. Different translators have, have rendered this reasonableness or gentleness or friendliness or big-heartedness. But, but I think the best English word that really sums up what this word about, it's used in the Holman Christian Standard uh, Version. It's the word graciousness. Graciousness. Paul says our graciousness should be known to everybody. Graciousness is the opposite of being quick-tempered. It's the opposite of, uh, of always going around insisting that we get our own way about things. It's when someone is gracious, they're easy to get along with. And shouldn't we as Christians be easy to get along with? This is a quality that 1 Timothy 3 says that pastors are supposed to have. But this verse says this is a quality that all believers are supposed to have. And when people have this characteristic of graciousness about us, it, it has a way of softening situations. It has a way of softening people's hearts and, and just diffusing things. Don't we need more of that in the church? Don't we need more of that in the family, in, in marriages? Don't we need graciousness towards each other? And I'll tell you what, we just need more of this in society in general. 
Because we live in a society right now where graciousness is a rare commodity, where where people don't want to be gracious with anybody. Everybody wants to be offended about everything. And when we're offended about something, well, we do a little Twitter rant about it, or we do a little treatise on Facebook about it. I read yesterday where some people were offended about what people wore to the royal wedding. I was too. I could barely sleep last night. I was just up all night thinking about it. Couldn't believe that dress, that she would wear that dress. I mean, we we have got to stop being offended about everything. Now, we should be offended when God's name is offended. We should be offended when the honor of God is offended. But we need to remember that the Bible says our real enemy is never other people. Ephesians 6 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against the rulers, the powers of of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's who our real battle is against. And so in our dealings with other people, even with people with whom we disagree, we're called to be known for graciousness. I pray that the people of First Baptist Melbourne, as we go out into this community from Monday to Saturday, we are known as a gracious people, a winsome people, because that speaks well of the gospel. One of the motivations for that is found at the end of that verse. He says, let your gentleness or graciousness be known to all men. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. You know, the Lord could come back at any moment. Do you want the Lord to come back and find you in the middle of a holy war with some person about some petty issue? I don't. I want the Lord to come back and find me displaying a spirit of graciousness. To be at peace with all men as much as depends on me. We are people who have experienced the grace of God. And because we have, we should be marked by the grace of God in the way that we treat other people. That's the third key. Here's a fourth key. This one is so huge. Paul says, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. Beginning of verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious. Be worried for nothing. You know, I said earlier that the command to rejoice always uh, might be one of the most disobeyed commands in the New Testament. I think this one is right up there with it, isn't it? How many of us obeyed this, this verse perfectly this week? Anybody? No worries at all. This is not easy, is it? This is a difficult command to obey. And yet what Paul says here really is alluding to the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a lengthy passage, but we need to read it here this morning. Listen to these words of Jesus. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, 
for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Three times in those verses, Jesus says to us, do not worry. And there's a lot of reasons that he gives for why we shouldn't worry, but I think it really all boils down to two main reasons. Here are two things that we need to accept about worrying. First of all, we need to accept that worrying is worthless. Worrying is worthless. Jesus says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to your stature? In other words, nobody got any taller by sitting around worrying. What's the point Jesus is making? The point is that you can't do anything by sitting around worrying, right? It does not accomplish a single thing. I came across this little poem that said, worry did nothing. It goes like this. Worry never climbed a hill. Worry never paid a bill. Worry never dried a tear. Worry never calmed a fear. Worry never led a horse to water. Worry never done a thing you think it ought to. I like that. And you think that we know that by now, right? That worrying is totally and utterly useless, and yet we continue to do it. And it isn't just useless, right? It also makes things worse. It has effects on us spiritually, emotionally, even physically. I heard about a dad who gave his sons some good advice. He said to them, boys, I give you permission to worry about everything in the world except for two things. And they said, well, Dad, what are those two things? And he says, things that you can't help and things that you can. Because if it's something that you can't help, you might as well not worry about it. And if it's something that you can help, you might as well go ahead and help it and stop worrying about it. Right? Doesn't that pretty much cover it all? That's some good advice. Worrying is worthless. Here, here's the second thing that we need to accept about worrying. Worrying is wicked. It, it's sinful. And I know sometimes we like to say, well, I'm just a worrier. I'm just a, a worry wart. What we're really saying is I'm just a sinner. Because this is not a suggestion, is it? This is a command. Do not be anxious about anything. And when we choose to worry, we're sinning against the Lord. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that when we do that, we're acting like pagans who do not know God. That's why some people have called worrying functional atheism. Now, I know that may sound harsh, but think about it. When we worry, what are we doing? We are acting as if God does not exist. Or, or at the very least, we're acting like the God of the Bible does not exist. A God who is a loving, heavenly Father. A God who Jesus said takes care of the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. And if our Father takes care of those and we are worth way more than they are, He says, your Father is going to take care of you. And so when we worry, what are we doing? We are failing to believe the promises of God. Our God, the Bible says, is all wise. He is all loving. He is all powerful. He never sleeps and he never slumbers. You know what that means? That means you can lay your head down on your pillow tonight and go to sleep because your God is not going to take the night off. But you know, telling a worrier to just stop worrying doesn't really get it done, does it? You know, just to say, just stop it. Stop that. Thankfully, this verse doesn't end there. Paul doesn't just say, be anxious for nothing. 
The verse continues. Here is the final key to a stable spiritual life. Paul says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Look at verse 6 again. He says, be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When something comes our way that we could potentially worry about, we have a clear choice between two options, right? We can worry about it or we can pray about it. And if we worry about it, what comes from that, right? Fear, stress, sleepless nights, all the things that we have talked about. But if we choose to make the other choice, if we pray about it, if we do what the old song says and we take it to the Lord in prayer, when we let our requests be made known to God with thanksgiving, with a spirit of thanksgiving that even in prayer, even in the difficult situation that we're in, is remembering who our God is, is remembering everything that our God has done for us in the past, how faithful he has been to take care of us. If we come before the Lord with that heart of thanksgiving and we submit our request to him, verse 7 tells us what happens. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Through Christ Jesus. In a word, what happens is peace. And not a human manufactured peace, a supernatural peace, right? A peace that surpasses all our own understanding, a peace that the world thinks should not be able to be there. And this is what I want you to hear. Our, our, our taking things to the Lord in prayer and experiencing his supernatural peace is an important part of our witness to the world. Because the world is watching us when difficult things come into our life to see if we're going to turn into a worrywart stress ball just like they would if that happened in their life. But when that doesn't happen, when in the middle of a difficult, trying situation, you are marked by hope and peace and joy, they say, how in the world is that possible? And you have an opportunity to give glory to God and to say, let me tell you how it's possible. It's not because of me. It's because I took that situation to the Lord in prayer and I gave it all to him and I know he's on the throne and I know he's big enough for it and he has filled me with a peace that I cannot explain. This verse actually says that that peace has an ongoing effect in our lives. It guards our hearts and minds. That's a military term. In the same way that the city of Philippi as a Roman colony was surrounded by a circle of Roman troops, soldiers, guarding the city. Paul says that when we give everything to the Lord in prayer and he fills us with a supernatural peace, that we have a ring of soldiers around us, right? That the peace of God is like that ring around us that is literally guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Anybody want that? An ongoing peace as we take things to the Lord and we leave it before him and we trust him. I heard the story about a tour bus that was driving down a, a steep and winding mountain road. And uh, the people on this tour bus, the tourists began to smell the, sound, the smell of the brakes that were beginning to give out. 
And the tour bus began to go faster and faster down this winding road, down this mountain. People on the sides of that, of, of that tour bus were looking over the window and they were seeing that they only had an inch or two to spare before that tire would careen off the side of that winding mountain road. People in the front began to shriek and scream as they would hit bumps going down that road and, and think that in just a moment that whole bus was about to careen off the side of that mountain. And yet in the back of that bus, the whole time, there was this little boy, he had fallen asleep. And he was able somehow, in all that commotion, all that noise, able to stay asleep in the back of that bus. And finally, when they made it to the bottom of that bus and everybody was, was, was safe and sound, people were so relieved. And, and one man went back and he woke up that little boy and, and they got around him. They asked him, they said, son, how, how is it possible that you were able to sleep that whole time when all of that commotion was going on? It, we thought we were about to die. And the boy said, I was able to sleep because my father drives the bus. Friend, do you know that your father, he drives a bus. You're not on somebody else's bus. You're on your father's bus. Your father who is working all things together for your good, to you who love him, to you who are called according to his purpose. You're not going to make a wrong turn if you're following after your father. He's got this. I want you to take just a moment. I want to ask you to bow your head with me and close your eyes. I want you to take just a moment. I want you to think about something that maybe even this past week you've been tempted to, to worry about. Maybe you have worried about it. And I want, I'm just going to give a, a minute for silent prayer. And I just want you, let's just practice together doing what this verse says. Instead of worrying about it, right now, take it to the Lord in prayer. And leave it with him and trust him and claim his promise of peace. Take just a moment between you and your father and do that.